Well, good morning. Boy, it's good to see all you guys out there. We are just blessed and beyond blessed with who all is here today. Dearest Heavenly Father, we do praise and thank you for your mercy. We thank you, Lord, that you are here. We thank you, Holy Spirit, that you have descended into this place and that you are richly filling us with your presence and that you will bring a word to us through Pastor Ray today. We thank you, Lord, for he and Ladane being here today and ministering to us. We thank you for the music, Lord, for all of the gifts that you um, descend upon us through this wonderful body. We praise you and thank you for this opportunity to worship you and to gather together in the precious and holy name of Jesus. Amen. Good morning, everybody. You know, I just, I stand amazed and awed when I get up and I take a look at our um, devotionals and what he has for us today. I mean, if this is God's, if this is not God's hand, <laughs> I don't know what, what God calls wisdom. He himself is our peace. He has broken down the middle wall of separation. Some time ago, a university professor was quoted as saying, there are two things that will never be solved. The problems of race and war. Perhaps he was right. Only time will tell. Admittedly, however, the Bible gives us reasons, little reasons for optimism about any lasting solution for these problems. The reason? Both racism and war have their origination in pride and covetousness of the human heart. Until our hearts are changed, we will fall back into the same destructive sins. That doesn't mean we throw up our hands in despair and refuse to do anything about war or racism. Not at all. The Bible calls Christ the Prince of Peace. He shattered the prejudices of his day by reaching out to those of another race. And he expects no less of us. The object of the cross is not only pardon for our sins, but it is also a changed life. Ask God to help you be an instrument of his love to those around you. And the hope for today, as long as there is sin, there will be strife and contention. Even so, peace will, excuse me, even so, peace is still a goal for all believers. The psalmist had said that to seek peace and to pursue it, and that is a definite heartfelt motivation to pursue it. With whom do you need to seek peace today? When there once was only her, he gave his healing hand. Where there once was only pain, he brought comfort like a friend. I feel the sweetness of his love. 
piercing my darkness. I see the bright and morning sun as it ushers in his joyful gladness. Turn my morning into dancing again. He's lifted my sorrows.
darkness comes in like a flood, the battle belongs to the Lord. He's raised up a standard, the power of his blood, the battle belongs to the Lord. We sing glory, honor, power and strength to the Lord. We sing glory, honor, power and strength to the Lord. When your enemy presses in hard, do not fear. The battle belongs to the Lord. Take courage, my friend, your redemption is near. The battle belongs to the Lord. We sing glory, honor, power and strength to the Lord. We sing glory, honor, power and strength to the Lord. Power and strength to the morning is from Isaiah 52 verses 7 through 10. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who proclaims peace, who brings glad tidings of good things, who proclaims salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. Your watchmen shall lift up their voices with their voices they shall sing together, you waste places of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has made bare his holy arm in the eyes of all the nations, and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. Our God reigns. 
Would you like to stand and join me in the Lord's Prayer? Unless you'd rather stay seated. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Testament reading today comes from Paul's letter to the Galatians, chapter 5, verse 1, and then verses 13 through 25. So Christ has truly set us free. Now make sure that you stay free and don't get tied up again in slavery to the law. For you have been called to live in freedom, my brothers and sisters, but don't use your freedom to satisfy your sinful nature. Instead, use your freedom to serve one another in love. For the whole law can be summed up in this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. But if you are always biting and devouring one another, watch out, beware of destroying one another. So I say, let the Holy Spirit guide your lives. 
then you won't be doing what your sinful nature craves. The sinful nature wants to do evil, which is just the opposite of what the Spirit wants. And the Spirit gives us desires that are the opposite of what the sinful nature desires. These two forces are constantly fighting each other so that you are not free to carry out your good intentions. But when you are directed by the Spirit, you are not under obligation to the law of Moses. When you follow the desires of your sinful nature, the results are very clear. Sexual immorality, impurity, lustful pleasures, idolatry, sorcery, hostility, quarreling, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, dissension, division, envy, drunkenness, wild parties, and other sins like these. Let me tell you again, as I have before, that anyone living that sort of life will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There is no law against these things. Those who belong to Jesus Christ have nailed the passions and desires of their sinful nature to his cross and crucified them there. Since we are living by the Spirit, let us follow the Spirit's leading in every part of our lives. You join me now in the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Church, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, all comes to you. All comes from you. You spoke and the world was created. You spoke and the seas and the skies separated and land was created. Lord, and so we know all comes from you, all belongs to you. But you have entrusted some to us. You call for us to be able to give back, to help share the blessings that you have blessed us with. Lord, we ask you to guide us in using these, using these gifts to do so in a way that honors you. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. If you'd like to rise for the doxology.
chapter 5 verses 1 through 5 from the NLT then I saw a scroll in the right hand of the one who was sitting on the throne 
There was writing on the inside and the outside of the scroll, and it was sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel who shouted with a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals on this scroll and open it? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll and read it. Then I began to weep bitterly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll and read it. But one of the 24 elders said to me, Stop weeping. Stop weeping. Look, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the heir to David's throne, has won the victory. He is worthy to open the scroll and its seven seals. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, indeed our uh, Lord Jesus is worthy. We ask, Father, this morning that you would open our ears to hear, open our eyes to see, open our hearts to comprehend your great grace, the truth of your word, the truth of your love for us, the truth of your peace. We ask it, Father, in Jesus' name, amen. There was a prophecy conference held in uh, Tucson uh, approximately six weeks ago. It was held at uh, Calvary Chapel. Um, Pastor Furrow hosted, uh, I would guess, at least six uh, prophecy teachers from all over the country. Uh, and I was listening on YouTube to uh, interviews that were done of some of these speakers. One in particular caught my attention. The uh, staff at Calvary interviewed David Guzik. He is the uh, Calvary Chapel pastor at Riverside, California, I believe. And uh, Pastor Guzik was asked, what concern do you have for Christians today? Specifically, American Christians, the American church. What concerns do you have today? His answer was quite striking. He said, what concerns me most about the American church is how few Christians truly understand we, where we are at in relation to Jesus' end times teachings or even care. I'm very concerned about how few Christians know or understand anything about the rapture. In the next four weeks, I'm going to teach on the end times. I'm going to try to dovetail into what Pastor Frank has been teaching. He's teaching on Revelation chapters 1 and 3. I'm going to follow in with uh, Revelations chapter 4 through 16. Concentrating on the rapture of the church and the great tribulation. My sermon title this morning is Thunder in the Desert. From John chapter 1. Verses 19 through 23, this is from the message. When Jews from Jerusalem sent a group of priests and officials to ask John the Baptist who he was, he was completely honest. 
He didn't evade the question. He told the plain truth. I am not Messiah. They pressed him. Who then are you? Elijah? I am not. The prophet? No, I am not. Exasperated, they said, Who then are you? We need an answer for those who sent us. Tell us something, anything about yourself. He answered, I am thunder in the desert. Make the road straight for God. I am doing what the prophet Isaiah preached. Why would the message translation add this phrase, thunder in the desert? The King James says, a voice crying in the wilderness makes straight the way of the Lord. We get a clue in Matthew chapter 3, verse 16, this from the New King James. When he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. And suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Many theologians believe that only Jesus and John heard that voice. That only Jesus and John heard the Father's voice. Anyone else at the scene would have heard only thunder. If we're not listening for God's voice, we will never hear him. If we hear anything, we'll hear only thunder. John the Baptist was quoting Isaiah 40 verse 3. Clear the way through the wilderness for the Lord. Make straight a highway through the wasteland for our God. Where do we make a highway straight for the Lord? In the wilderness. Did the children of Israel make a straight highway for the Lord as they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years? Absolutely not. They kept doing circle after circle around Mount Sinai, never looking up to see the God of glory. Is America wandering in the wilderness? You bet your sweet Sunday we are. We had 542 riots last summer. How many will we have this summer now that Roe v. Wade has been overturned? But the entire planet is in chaos, not just America. Christians in Nigeria are facing genocide. Many Christians on the African continent, as well as Christians in China, Turkey, India, Iran, and the Philippines, to name a few, are facing fierce persecution. When I was uh, fortunate enough to go to Israel in 2013, uh, we went as a group of about 12, and I noticed that as we toured, um, I, I would call it central Jerusalem, there's, there's quite a few churches, probably at least a dozen, from Coptic to Catholic to everything you can imagine, but... Uh, some of these were rather ancient structures and uh, completely beautiful on the inside. But I noticed that almost every time our group would go into one of these churches, there would be a group 
of African Christians near the pulpit area. And they would spontaneously start singing Amazing Grace. And everybody that was in the church at that time would join in. And it was fabulous. But uh, outside one of these churches, I bumped into a leader of a group of Nigerian Christians. And we got to talking, and uh, I introduced him to our group, and he said, would, would you guys join us for a group photo? And we, absolutely, absolutely. And uh, as we joined groups, these Nigerian Christians had a banner. And uh, it was about 10 foot long. And across the banner it read, Delta State, Nigeria, the House of Destiny. The name of the church is the House of Destiny. And as we took that photo, they asked us, won't you please pray for us? That was nine years ago. I wonder how many of those Christians are still alive. But I have that photo, and it reminds me to pray. 360 million Christians live in areas of the world that are currently experiencing high levels of persecution. The Catholic Church says that 400 Christians a day are being martyred for their faith. Does this headline the news? No. But Joe Biden falling off his bicycle does. More Christians have been martyred for their faith in the last century than all other centuries combined. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew 24. We're going to discuss the uh, Olivet Discourse. The Olivet Discourse is found in all three synoptic Gospels. Those are Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John is not a synoptic Gospel. John focuses on who Jesus is. The synoptic Gospels focus more on what Jesus did. But the fact that it's in all three synoptic Gospels tells us it is important. A little history. This is the last week of Jesus' life. He and his disciples are in Jerusalem attending the Passover. You have the Passover, which falls immediately into the festival of first fruits. So they were there in Jerusalem for eight days. And during those eight days, Jesus is preaching in the temple during the day. And he and his disciples are sleeping on Mount Olivet at night. Jerusalem during Passover swells to, who knows, probably ten times its normal population. The Passover is one of the three sacrament, uh, sacramental festivities that is required for Jewish men to attend every year. So Jerusalem is completely swollen out of its bounds. There's no room in the end. Uh, in the end, so Jesus and his disciples are sleeping at night under the olive trees on Mount Olivet. 
this night, Jesus and his disciples have gathered around the campfire and the disciples are asking for Jesus to clarify some teachings he has taught earlier in the week concerning the temple. Matthew 24, 6 through 12 from the NLT. This is Jesus speaking. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of birth pains. King James says the beginning of sorrows. Then you will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death. And you will be hated by all nations because of me. At that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other. And many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Verse 12. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. But the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. Skip to verse 30. And then at last, the sign that the Son of Man is coming will appear in the heavens, and there will be deep mourning among all the peoples of the earth. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with the mighty blast of a trumpet, and they will gather his chosen ones from all over the world, from the farthest ends of the earth, and heaven. This is not the rapture. Who are the chosen ones? They're not who you think. I'll give you a hint. They number 144,000. Verse 32. Now learn a lesson from the fig tree. When its branches bud and the leaves begin to sprout, you know that summer is near. In the same way, when you see all these things, you can know my return is very near, right at the door. I tell you the truth, this generation will not pass from the scene until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will disappear, but my words will never disappear. This generation... What generation is Christ speaking of? The disciples are convinced that Jesus is talking about their generation, the current generation, but he is not. Jesus is talking about the generation that will witness all these calamities. Take note that Jesus is speaking here in a very private conversation with his disciples. No one else is around. And they are all very focused on the temple since Jesus has prophesied his destruction. And they are convinced that if the temple is soon to be destroyed, the end of times is near. But the fig tree in this parable is symbolic of the nation of Israel. And note that Jesus does not say when Jerusalem will fall. No one 
of Jesus' disciples could have imagined a coming dispersion of the Jewish nation that would last 2,000 years. The fig tree in this parable, again, is symbolic of the nation of Israel. And note that Jesus, excuse me. So what's our takeaway? From what we've read thus far, what's our takeaway? The parable of the fig tree is not meant to be understood until these last days. And since we're in the last days, what do we now understand? The leaves of the fig tree beginning to sprout is speaking of the rebirth of Israel after a 2,000 year exile from their land. When did this happen? 1948. Jesus is here prophesying that the generation of Jews born during the rebirth of Israel will see Messiah. There are many common misconceptions about end times. Many believe that a biblical generation is 40 years. That is incorrect. When I was in high school, there was a young man, um, he was the old-time Methodist, uh, sometimes they were called Pentecostal holiness, and uh, he, was always, he, he was always telling me, Jesus is coming back in 1988. Well, this, uh, this was in the 60s, but... Um, You'll note that uh, 1988 has uh, long since passed. But people in the day were saying, well, 1948 had 40 years, biblical generation. You get 1988. Oops. 1988 is long past, but most theologians agree that 40 years was how long it took a generation to come to maturity much like we define millennials. We say those who came to maturity, roughly 20 years of age at the turn of the century, we call them millennials. But 40 years in the Bible is either a time of preparation, or in the case of Israel's wilderness wandering, it is the length of a sentence of judgment. God sentenced Israel to wander in the wilderness because of their unbelief. God was judging the original generation of Israelites who were delivered out of Egypt. And that entire generation died in the wilderness, except Joshua and Caleb. My point, 40 years is not a biblical generation. The length of years for a biblical generation, birth to death, is actually 70 to 80 years. So add 70 years to 1948, and what do you get? 2018. Oops. But add 80 years, 2018, and what do you get? 2028. Messianic theologians have calculated the 70 weeks of Daniel to be fulfilled in 2028. But know this, there is no prophecy remaining to be fulfilled that would prevent Christ from coming back in the next five minutes. 
So you ask, but Ray, where's, where's your proof for this biblical generation being 70 to 80 years? Psalm 90. This is a prayer of Moses. Psalm 90, verses 9 through 10. We live our lives beneath your wrath, ending our years with a groan. Seventy years are given to us. Some even live to eighty. But even the best years are filled with pain and trouble, and soon they disappear and we fly away. There is evidence in Scripture to, to support a seventy to eighty year lifespan for the past 3,000 years. King David was considered to be an old man when he died at the age of 70. That was 1,000 years B.C. 1,000 years, 2,000 years since Christ, 3,000 years. In Israel today, the lifespan for males is 77 years. For females, 81 so which generation was Christ talking about? If the length of David's generation, Christ's generation, and the average lifespan of those living in Israel today is 70 to 80 years, it would be reasonable to conclude that the generation Christ was talking about in the parable of the fig tree is also 70 to 80 years. The fig tree in this parable represents the nation of Israel, and many prophet, prophetic scholars believe this. And the fact that a generation has, uh, the current generation has a lifespan of 70 to 80 years, then recent events such as the birth of Israel should be a flashing road sign to us on the highway to end time. Additionally, the prophecies of Ezekiel 38 and Revelation chapter 16 are coming, coming true right before our eyes as Russia, Iran, Ethiopia, and Libya now form four of the seven-nation confederacy prophesied to attack Israel, which will begin the battle known as Armageddon. There really is no battle of Armageddon. Armageddon is 150 square miles of flat plains. The armies assembled against God will bivouac at Armageddon. They will prep for the battle of Jerusalem. It's not properly called the battle of Armageddon because they only stage for the battle against Jerusalem at Armageddon. Revelation 11 speaks of preparations for rebuilding the Jewish temple. It's already been prefabricated. The current negotiations for a peace treaty between Israel and the Palestinians was prophesied 2,500 years ago, Daniel chapter 9. These are all strong indicators that the generation Christ was talking about has already been born. And the return of Christ to establish his millennial kingdom is close at hand. Now take note the end time events described 
in Jesus' Olivet Discourse, also in the book of Revelation, none of those can take place without Israel back in her homeland. More than one-fourth of the Bible is prophecy. More than 300 prophecies concerning Christ's birth, death, and resurrection were fulfilled when Jesus was crucified on Golgotha. But there are 900 prophecies concerning his second coming. It is critically important for us to understand that the second coming of Jesus will happen in two parts. The rapture of the church and Jesus' second coming are separated by the seven years of tribulation, but both are the second coming of Christ. The second coming of Christ is in two parts. The first part being the rapture of the church. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 Verse 15 from the NLT. We tell you this directly from the Lord. We who are still living when the Lord returns will not meet him ahead of those who have died. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a commanding shout, with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God, and unbelievers won't hear a thing, won't see a thing. All they'll see is the chaos that's left from tens of thousands of Christians vaporizing. Whether they're driving their cars, operating heavy equipment, whatever they're doing, they will instantly disappear. But unbelievers will hear no fanfare. First, the believers who have died will rise from their graves... Then together with them, we who are still alive and remain on the earth will be caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Then we will be with the Lord forever. So encourage each other with these words. The first part of Jesus' second coming, he comes and meets us in the first heaven. He meets us in the clouds. He does not come to the earth. We meet him in the air. He takes us back to heaven. And then the seven years of tribulation. But take note. Scriptures don't specify that the rapture of the church will immediately effect or bring into being the seven years of tribulation. There could be 10 to 20 years before those seven years of revelation, uh, excuse me, of tribulation began. I personally don't think it'll take that long, but it could be. The scripture is not specific. Part two. Jesus will return to the earth with all his saints. He's gathered the saints from the graves. Those of us who are still alive, he'll gather us and we'll meet him in the air. He'll take us back to heaven. We come back with him at his second coming when he comes to the earth. And he will touch down in the exact square inch of where he lifted off at his ascension into heaven. 
and the Mount of Olives will split in two. And I think a fascinating... Have have any of you ever been to the Dead Sea? Fascinating thing will happen when Jesus touches down and the Mount of Olives is split in two. There will waters gush up into that canyon and those waters will flow all the way to the Dead Sea. The Dead Sea will be revitalized. So buy yourself a little fish and tackle hut on the Dead Sea now. Get get ahead of the curve. Part 2, Jesus will return to the earth with all his saints at the climax of the Great Tribulation known as the Battle of Armageddon to defeat all the armies of the earth who have gathered to annihilate Israel. Zechariah prophesies that all the nations will gather together to destroy Israel. One thing is for certain. You don't want to be here during the Great Tribulation. Excuse me, Mark chapter 13, verses 19 through 20. For there will be greater anguish in those days than at any time since God created the world. And it will never be so great again. In fact unless the Lord shortens that time of calamity, not a single person on earth will survive. But for the sake of his chosen ones, he has shortened those days. Who are the chosen ones? I thought the chosen had already been raptured to heaven. Who are the chosen ones? We're safe in heaven with Christ. So who are the chosen ones? Many people will be saved during the tribulation. That's what the tribulation is all about. God will ratchet up. He will increase clamor, horror. The tribulation is for all of those hardcore sinners who refuse to believe. When you see hundred pound hailstones hitting this earth, if you're inclined to repent, you're going to repent then. But salvation during the tribulation will require martyrdom. Mark 13 is talking about the seven years of great tribulation, but just look what's happening here at the beginning of sorrows. Russia's threatening nuclear war. We have chemical and biological war going on. By the way, if you think coronavirus was an accident, quit watching CNN. Is this world ready for 666? We'll discuss that next week. If you own a cell phone, Big Brother can find you. Did you know the, uh, when they first rolled out the Obamacare program, the intention was to have you in, uh, a chip injected into your neck. 
And the reasoning they would give you for having that chip in your neck, well, we can monitor your health. You notice that heart patients nowadays, they do that. They put a, a chip in their chest and it monitors their heart rate, their circadian rhythms. And I, I know of people that have received a call at 3 o'clock in the morning, you're about to have a heart attack. Get to the hospital. But Obama wanted that chip to do a lot more than just let you know you're having a stroke. Now we have chips in pill form that you can swallow attached to your stomach line. It's easy. National security experts are warning that we could be at war with Russia or China or both within the year. If you're paying attention to what's going on in the Sea of China, what's going on in Taiwan, beware. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4 from the NLT. For that day, Christ's return will not come until there is a great rebellion against God and the man of lawlessness, Antichrist, is revealed. The one who brings destruction. He will exalt himself and defy everything that people call God and every object of worship. He will even sit in the temple of God claiming that he is God himself. The third temple has to be built in order for Antichrist to sit in that temple and declare himself God. When I visited Israel again in 2015, we had a uh, Jewish tour guide. He had an interesting Bible. He had the Tanakh and only the Gospel of John. But I asked him, I said, uh, his name was Roni. I said, Roni, so how much of the third temple has already been prefabricated? And he looked at me like I was giving away national secrets. There was horror on his face that uh, in his mind that I would even speculate that. But the look on his face confirmed what I knew to be true. When Antichrist brokers the deal which will allow the third temple to be built, it'll be erected in days. And I'll go so far as to say what's going to make it really easy for the Antichrist to negotiate that deal is the fact that the third temple won't be built on the Temple Mount. It'll be built on the awful south of what we call the Temple Mount. The Temple Mount, what's called the Temple Mount today, the Roman legion that occupied Rome when the second temple was destroyed. Think about that, 6,000 people. If you've been to the Temple Mount it would be hard to put 6,000 troops on the Temple Mount. So you scratch your head and you think, so the Jews have been praying to what they think is the Western Wall all this time, and it's the Western Wall of the Antonio Fortress? But the springs of Hezekiah, they're south. 
They're south of what is now called the Temple Mount. The springs of Hezekiah had to be there to spring up within the temple to do all those sacrifices. Imagine how many thousands of sacrifices were performed during the Day of Atonement. You've got to have water. There's no water on the Temple Mount. So it's going to be easy for Antichrist to say, oh, you want to rebuild the temple. Okay, you, you now have proof that the temple was not where it is today, so you don't have to disturb the Muslims. You can leave the Mosque of Omar right where it is. Go ahead and build your temple. But that temple has to be built before Antichrist can profane it with the desecration of abomination. But if you're here to see it, you miss the rapture. So do we live in fear, afraid to turn on the uh, 6 o'clock news for fear we will hear of another war, another terror? Absolutely not. John 14, verses 1 through 4 from the New King James. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And where I go, you know, and you know the way. Hallelujah. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you that your Bible is a road map. It is a harbinger. It tells us that your coming is very near. Lord Jesus, you said yourself, not even I know the time of my return, only the Father. But we thank you, Lord Jesus, that you have given us to know the season. And this is the season, and it's time for us to wake up and smell that holy coffee. We thank you, Lord, that your word gives us ample warning. Your return is very near. And we should be about the Father's business. We should be sharing our faith at home, at work, at school, in the grocery store. We should be sharing our faith. People can't believe in you until they hear about you. Remind us, Lord, that the second greatest story ever told is our personal testimony of how we came to Christ. We need to share our testimony. People will perish without knowing you. We pray that you'll drive that point home to us. Give us a holy fear concerning all this. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.
Father, we thank you for this message today that Ray has brought us. We know that it was inspired by you. Lord, and we ask that each one of us look in internally and know, be able to say that, yes, we are one of your chosen. Lord, but let us not fool ourselves either. Let us, let us uh, show the love we have for you, the way you have shown the love you have for us. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. God be with us till we meet again. By his counsels guide a fold. 